From Hypebeast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. Samuel Ross is one of the youngest, most exciting designers today. His brand, A Cold Wall, is making headlines, I feel like, every week at this point. Yes, that's him bringing in partners like Renzo Rosso from Diesel. Yep, that's him doing design projects with Oakley and Nike. And yes, that's him sandwiched in between Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell. In our first ever episode with Hiroshi Fujiwara, I asked HF what new brands he's excited about, and the only one he mentioned was a cold wall. But where did he come from? 24 months ago, no one heard of a cold wall. To most, this would be a telltale overnight success story. But I had a hunch that was not the case. I could tell this wasn't a trust fund kid with loads of disposable income or some hype designer du jour. I could tell something was going on that was deeper and more complex. I just didn't understand how deep this 26-year-old could go. So let's begin. Um, first, I guess, introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah, yeah. I should start there. I'm Samuel Ross, and I'm the designer and founder of A Cold Wall. I also run a contemporary homewares brand called Concrete Objects, and I've just launched A Cold Wall sister brand, Polyphene Optics. Okay. Um, if, uh, if I'm sitting on a flight with you and I'm a stranger and I just, you know, lean over and I'm like, yeah. Hey, what's your name and what do you do? What, what do you say is your title? It's difficult. Um, do you go, do you get into it? A little, I try to say, oh, I work in design rather than be like, Hey, I'm a designer because a lot of people use that title and it's quite, uh, wide yeah. as well. I often say I'm, I'm a creative director. Mm-hmm. That's the easy way to kind of umbrella multiple fields. Mm-hmm. And then, so if I then say, Oh, like you have your own brand and then you say yes. And then I say, what's the name of your brand? Right. And then you say a cold wall. And then I say ACW. You don't go into cold wall. Because they say a cold war and it's like, ah, it's not war. It's, and then that's then it derails the conversation. Right. I just go in with like, it's called ACW, it's avant-garde. Okay. And usually that word steers them off. Or the word avant-garde. Yeah. Yeah. Then they're like, oh, I'm yeah, not cool enough. It's, it's like moderately intimidating yes, as well. To a non-designer or a yeah. creative, right. And I can slip my headphones back on if need be. <laughs> or if I can tell they have like some moderate interest within the field. Uh-huh. I will probably talk about my background in like product design mm-hmm. and installation art mm-hmm. and then move into fashion. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so when someone asks you, why is it called the cold wall? What is the reason why? Well, it's interesting. I used to actually like take the time to tell every single soul who asks me mm-hmm. what and why it's named a cold wall. Mm-hmm. The dilemma I'd face is that it's a conceptual theory so there's no straightforward immediate answer Mm -hmm. without me going into say 200 words so now what I've started to do is flip it if it's someone who I kind of senses into the field or culture that we're part of I would ask have you heard of a cold wall Mm -hmm. and spin it that way and if they said no I'd say okay well I can point you to this link and this link and you can find out more about it in depth okay save myself giving like you know a two-hour speech every single time oh okay and so on those links, what do you say? Uh, they're usually like uh, in-depth interviews okay. I've, I've done. But if, if I could, like if they really have an interest in it and I am compelled to tell them about it, yeah. I usually say that it's this uh, this case study um, that really looks at 
melting pot culture within uh you know dense areas and it's this it's this uh relationship between class systems explained through art you know that's that's like the easiest surface level way Mm -hmm. rather than saying oh there's insulation and there's soundscapes and there's garments and there's like you know a real tension within the movement and the garments i usually say it's like a case study on class systems through art interesting Mm -hmm. so maybe it might be interesting for me to tell you what i thought cold wall was before i heard the definition yeah so i thought it was something that first had inspirations in architecture Mm -hmm. and sort of buildings but then also i felt like there was an inner city thing happening too where it's like almost like housing projects yeah are a cold wall and there's like a physical because there's like a physical wall and it's cold because we're not in miami or we're mm-hmm. not like in bali right it's yeah, like yeah. An inner city which is like london or new york and not only is there a physical wall but there's also like an emotional wall that is hard to climb over if you're behind this cold wall mm-hmm. that's that was my impression that ties in really well to a lot of notion because of course the references, the the asymmetry, um, the material choices and yeah. the finishings all link back to the architectural yes. notions of a lot of the time public housing or like Bauhaus movements or mm-hmm. failed Bauhaus movements mm-hmm. throughout like Europe and the UK, which of course are synonymous with any like capitalist city mm-hmm. which carries the same type of tiered uh, living yeah. ecosystem. Right, the haves so, and the have-nots. Exactly. So yeah. there is definitely a lot of that in it. And it's funny you say that because the name and notion and colour palette initially originated from, I remember I must have been around 21 or 22 and I had moved back to my mum's my house for like a few months temporarily or whatnot. I was still trying to figure it out. And... Um, this was just after I'd gone into working with Virgil and like the whole Donda team and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And of course I was like, you know, really, I felt I had this confidence to tell new stories through design. And I wanted to make sure the story that was being told was more so a story I'd lived through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to treat it as a case study and I was literally just looking out the window of the neighborhood in which I grew up in. And it was entire, like, you know, the idea uh, came from the wall textures that surrounded me. Mm-hmm. So there is a very literal uh, component to the wall. To, yeah, to the wall and to yeah. the story, which yeah. is, that's worked out really well. But mm-hmm. then there's this, uh, uh, you know, there's this introspective side to it, which gets into the idea of how architecture and and these case studies can... Uh, really carry an emotive intelligence yeah. through them. Mm-hmm. And I find that quite interesting because, of course, the Bauhaus movement and post-modern, like, 1950s to 60s British architecture feels quite desolate, but also uh, quite synthesized and futuristic. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that and the failure of the uh, these areas uh that to me really carry a heavy emotion towards it and i really believe that architecture has an influence on decisions and choices people make and how they feel yeah so those uh ideas what i've tried to do is consolidate that into a clothing narrative Mm -hmm. 
of course it can't just all fit in clothing so there's the the sound experience that goes uh in turn with that or there's the use of insulation art mm-hmm. to represent tension yeah in other ways and how space can be used um within the clothing sphere but also as like a wider artistic viewpoint right which is why it's very difficult to just say <laughs> or answer what a cold war is yeah because yeah the whole premise was to start it as an art project mm-hmm. and just see how it went and it you know ended up being very viable as a business which is brilliant but it's still an art project in its core yeah it's very different that explanation of a cold wall is very different than like when someone says it's a young men's brand age 17 yeah. to 25 <laughs> you exactly know, like, and we do denim it's like, <laughs> yeah, 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 it's yeah. like a little bit different <laughs> yeah totally totally so it's not even do you even consider yourself a fashion designer uh at this point yes i do because i design around even outside of a cold war for the cold war i probably do per mm-hmm. collection around 450 pieces now mm-hmm. and i do like two standardized collections a year mm-hmm. so that's like what 900 pieces yeah. then i do oakley as well yeah. which i have a collection with and i do around 40 pieces um i do like of course design for nike and whatnot mm-hmm. as well and other brands yeah uh so i would call myself a designer due to the sheer amount of clothing <laughs> that you have to, I have to output and design yeah, right and i spend every day doing it yeah. with my team if not independently right. so i would say that but i would say that i'm a designer in the broader spectrum as i enjoy developing clothing just as much as i enjoy developing installations mm-hmm. and soundscapes and homewares yeah you know? right um and how old is the brand now the brand is three and a half years old now okay and how old are you if i can ask? i'm 26 wow yeah so you got a young start yeah i did i was like i kind of knew what i wanted to do from young mm-hmm. i majored in graphic design and product design from when i was like 15 mm-hmm. to 16 got straight into to college before going to university over here um won my first like this small design award when i was like 17 in college and then i won a design award just as i graduated which was um awarded to me by the typographer i'm about to come back to this now i can't remember his name eric spikerman okay eric spikerman mm-hmm. awarded a legend me yeah the og of like typography Mm -hmm. and he awarded me it with a signed red book of his which was brilliant and i just was scouting and went straight into product and graphic design at a commercial level yeah so i worked commercially for around three years before moving specifically in to design for clothing so i would say commercial you mean like agency ad agencies yeah yeah so i was at um a product design agency uh-huh. in Leicester and I was like doing homewares and cookwares uh-huh. and, and like cutlery yeah. and like web design for like Jamie Oliver, Grand Designs, working, uh-huh. like gritty design, like actual design that has no glory to yeah. it. Just commercial, commercial Yeah, proper stuff. commercial design. Yeah. I think that's kind of bled through into part of my strategy with Cold War, hence why it's grown because I had uh-huh. a bit more of a commercial background. Yeah. Around that time, I had all these like esoteric um, short art films I was producing, which is still on YouTube now, which uh-huh. have like 10 views, which are from like <laughs> eight years ago that no one knows about. But it's all out there. Right, like yeah. It's all out there. And I had um, a, uh, a street artist alias, and I was called Bitmap. Mm-hmm. And I was just po- like pasting up these huge illustrations okay. I was doing because my degree was in graphic design and contemporary illustration Uh so at that point i could still paint not now but back then i've lost that skill um so there's always been this relationship 
a working and professional relationship with design as a whole. Mm-hmm. I kind of knew I wanted to be in design before I was even really aware of the magnitude of fashion. Right, right. You know, because I couldn't afford these things coming up. It's pretty astonishing that a young Samuel Ross living in the projects found himself exposed to things like advertising, fashion, graphic design, soundscapes, and legendary, albeit nerdy, design heroes like Eric Speakerman. This mixed bag of interest comes through in subtle tones in A Cold Wall and his other projects. There's a consideration and intent in what he does. It's not obvious that this was inspired by that, but you know there are unspoken volumes behind his works. And when you consider the specific environment that Samuel came from, it's an even more amazing thing that he got to where he is at such a young age and in such a short amount of time. That's all I'm from the ends. So yeah. <laughs> like my first encounter with like luxury came super late. My yeah. first encounter with like streetwear, we didn't, we didn't even call it streetwear back then because it was just like a Nike tracksuit, Addy tracksuit. Mm-hmm. I'd buy fake uh, Nike Air Max Limiteds off the estate for like £25 because there's wow. no way I could afford a full pair, like uh-huh. an actual real pair. Yeah. And then um, I started selling fake Nike and Adidas when I was like 15, 16 <laughs> out of my mum's yard. Like really? just selling it, yeah, 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 to all my friends and my boys or whatnot, and I found out. Well, I always had this this like passive relationship with clothing. I just wasn't aware it was really a thing. Yeah, coming from like the background I did, there was an appreciation for art, for, but not for fashion because mm-hmm. it just was completely out of our spectrum. Yeah, you know. Yeah, fashion so, was just like a utilitarian thing you put on your yeah, body. Yeah, it was a uniform. Not a statement. Nah, it was just like, you, fashion to me was like a fresh Nike tracksuit. Uh-huh. And I'd go to like TJ Maxx and like just fish through for any pair of Nike or Addy that I yeah. could put. I was like that type of kid. We didn't have any money. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like, oh, I want the latest Addy. It was like, I just want a, a Nike shoe. Yeah, yeah I, just, like, I just want the, the tip. If it had a swoosh or anything that looked somewhat any, like a anything swoosh. Anything slightly branded, <laughs> I would like just like, good enough yeah i yeah. remember like begging my mom when i was like 13 for this nike school backpack which is probably like 1999 uh-huh. so, like we can't afford it yeah went down to umbro went down to diodora just any <laughs> any type of brand that right. had a decent logo i just wanted to be part of yeah and they would be like well what's wrong with you but i didn't know i had this knack for or a real understanding of branding and mm-hmm. brand value from quite young yeah you know it's interesting because i've actually in, in a bunch of these interviews now I've learned that a lot of people who are successful, I don't know if there's some sort of common thread, but they get their start in graphic design, mm-hmm. a little sprinkling of product design, and then somehow that makes like for a really good fashion designer. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think I've interviewed anyone that like has been pure, pure fashion from day one. Went through the old school. Yeah, yeah, old school like draping and croquis mm-hmm. and you know, like that's really weird because I think when I see your work, I see a graphic designer's eye to it, you know? Yeah. And, oh, the last person that I talked to about this was actually Yoon from Ambush. I had that one, Where yeah. she's a graphic designer, and you could just see it in mm-hmm. all her packaging and work and it's everything. It's the visual idea and language is so cohesive when yeah. it comes from, like, anyone who has a, a, a really specific way of communicating through graphic design. Yeah. And I think there's something... I don't know if it's, like, a this shared global curriculum of some sort... But there's something there about producing for the real world mm-hmm. that connects and it's really about cohesion in visual language and yeah. knowing how to create brands that feel real. Like yeah. this ability to know what uh, 
what dots you need to connect to uh-huh. create the idea of a brand or an identity or of life through a product. Right. You know? And I think that's what is the difference between a graphic designer and an artist, right? Mm-hmm. Artist, you could just make it for one person. Yeah. Graphic designer, by trade, it's you're making it for the still. world. Yeah. Like, it's, you're serving. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you have to create things that work globally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, like, you know, somehow there's, like, a real OCD-ness about graphic designers mm-hmm. when it comes down to, like kerning typefaces mm-hmm. and tracking and you know using the right letter sets uh, yeah letter sets shit, yeah and i feel like if you are taking the time to kern mm-hmm. your font then everything else from the buttons to the zippers to the will fashion be aligned, show, will yeah. be aligned mm-hmm. but it comes down to that like atomic level no, for molecular sure. like that <laughs> like just really caring about every everything single and it's, it's really understanding the, the accumulation of several mistakes can lead to like a landslide in a brand identity yeah and that being convincing almost like a subconscious level so yeah. every dot does need to be aligned every layer does need to be kind right uh every typeset does need to be perfect mm-hmm. because if they're not it's when you see this it's like if you see like you know a piece of branding not specifically a clothing brand but any type of brand or any type of business mm-hmm. and if the communication is not quite right whether that's through the graphic or whether it's through the the uh the actual language mm-hmm. or copy that's used mm-hmm. As soon as you have an inclination of second guessing, mm-hmm. the illusion's gone. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And for most people, they won't even be able to articulate what's wrong. Mm-hmm. They'll just be like turned off somehow. It just doesn't feel it right. It just doesn't yeah. feel right. Yeah. Wow, it's really observant. To me, the amount of effort that goes into something that is just quote unquote well designed is very underestimated. I'm not even talking about groundbreaking or award winning work. I'm just talking about like when you go to IKEA and buy a dope spatula. I mean, sure, there's a ton of research, work, and vetting that goes into something like that. But anything well-designed is kind of like a house of cards. And as Samuel said, if one thing is off, one tiny little thing, it throws everyone off the trail. Oftentimes in a way they can't even perceive. It's like the difference between a Tesla and a Chevy Volt, or an Apple and a Dell, or a Nike and a Skechers. It's not simply about design quality, because that can be bought. Companies can pay more for higher quality design. It's really about consideration. It's the question of whether you as a brand owner or a creative even cared to consider to take that one thing to the next level. Do you feel old in this industry? Like you're, to me, you're like, you're, you said you're 25, 26, 26. So you, your body, is five years older than my whole brand, <laughs> right? Like you've been on this earth five years longer yeah, yeah. than Staple has been on this earth. Yeah. So I see you as like a real young buck. Yeah. But that has accomplished so much. Do you feel young or do you feel like a veteran in the game? I don't feel like a veteran. I feel like I live in like a time lapse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I definitely, I definitely don't feel like a veteran. I feel like I've like probably now just started i say like i've been in more pop culture in mm-hmm. our field for like five years yeah now so i'd say i'm just starting but i do feel like i'm really grateful to live in a phase of fashion and design where things move quicker yeah as well definitely you know because i grew up literally like watching your youtube documentaries mm-hmm and seeing the process of growing an actual design studio because that was my primary interest mm-hmm. before fashion, yep. of course. So I feel like I'm just very grateful to live in a time where 
things can move quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I am aware that I literally just spent all my time working. So yeah. anyone who is involved in my life, as I said, from my, my wife to be mm-hmm. to like my best friend, Andrew, who's my business partner, mm-hmm. to my, my right hand Yi, we all work together. Yeah. This is literally what we do. <laughs> there's no there's, there's separation between personal and business. No, no, no. There's nothing else. Right. So in that sense, I feel like I live in a time lapse because where a lot of people might stop working at like 7 to 9 p.m. and then go up, go out and turn up, mm-hmm. I just keep working. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been that way for a long time. Like when I used to work for like several people in, in the industry, I'd still be at the club with my huge tote bag prototype mm-hmm. with my whole life in it, mm-hmm. including my laptop. Right. So I'd be at the club, but I'd still be developing the artwork for someone else's show or yeah. something. It was always this thing where people would come to me to get work done because they just knew that that's all, all I really lived right. and did, right. which is how I kind of built up a decent portfolio list quite quickly because mm-hmm. I just worked. I yeah. remember being at like family parties and I'd, I'd get a call from like Tremaine and it would be like, hey, Frank needs some like potential artwork. And we just like bang out 150 pieces of artwork for a single that one night. And I've got my whole family downstairs celebrating my cousin's birthday. Mm -hmm. And I used to feel like I feel bad for missing those moments. But this is what it also takes. I I was aware of that. Right. And that that artwork didn't even go through, Uh which is fine. But it's more so. It's the process. Yeah, it's the process. And and it it spoke really about like the the diligence of Uh living in that time lapse and living outside of a normal uh like day to day. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You spoke about um, sort of the evolution of how your exposure to branding was really about like the whole Nike and Adidas tracksuit. When did like street culture slash urban fashion enter your life? It depends what phase. I'd say like it really entered from, of course, Air Force One growing uh-huh. up with that shoe from age like 14, mm-hmm. 13. Um, onto the first ever new era hat I bought mm-hmm. when I was like also about 14. I'd say about the age of 14. Okay. Like my first ever like work placement was in a streetwear store. Really? Yeah. Your first job was in a re- in a streetwear yeah, store? Yeah, I was like 11. <laughs> like what? work experience in this store called Stars of London. Uh-huh. It was just like... And what new, were they selling? New eras. They were selling like Lot 29. Um, they were selling No Fear, a small brand from over here as well. Wow. They were selling... Uh, they were selling... A, I can't even remember a lot of the names now. They were like brands that existed for a few years yeah, at that yeah. point. It was still like quite a niche... Right. a niche thing you mm-hmm. know and it still had an overlay with like early 2000s hip-hop it hadn't really matured out and become its own like way of communicating yet you yeah know? when if ever did you get exposed to like real u.s slash japan streetwear like i'm talking stussy Ivisu. Or... or Ivisu, yeah or like babe like <sighs> it would probably it all happened around the same time between yeah. the age of like 13 and 15 mm-hmm. um I mean, because I lived in the end, so really the only part of that I got to see was through, like, TV. Yeah. A lot of the time uh-huh. as well. Like music videos or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so, like, artists like Pharrell, da, mm-hmm. da, da, they were, like, a lot of references, which were so alien from what I actually yeah. grew up in, right. being from, like, the UK. Like, I was born in London, moved out to what we call country, the countryside, which is just, like, nothing. There's nothing there apart yeah. from the States. Literally nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never saw an element of wealth unless it was through TV. Yeah. So I'd see all this stuff on TV, like Bape, 
people wearing yada 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 yada, Evisa, whatever, at the age of like 13, 14. But as soon as that TV is turned off, it was almost like back to reality. Yeah. It was so far away and so unattainable mm-hmm. that there was never any inclination that I would be A, able to move into fashion, B, have some type of influence on a specific culture, or C, uh, even have this type of conversation. That just mm-hmm. was not even something you would think about ever. Yeah. Like, it just didn't happen, uh-huh. you know? Right. So it's, it's hard to... There was no real, like, immediate, immediate crossover. Mm-hmm. For me this whole dialogue came through literally the discipline of design yeah you know and of course um crossing paths with virgil was a big point yeah. where i really entered i'd say fashion as a whole just interning and helping out before going on to becoming assistant role or whatnot that was a real crossover paris was big mm-hmm. but uh, it wasn't the first instance it was more so the pivotal turning point mm-hmm. you know so this is working with virgil was pre a cold wall yeah so, even in your head, like a cold wall wasn't even born in your brain yet. No, no, not at all. Like I think up until so basically, I worked for Virgil for like three and a half years before Off White mm-hmm. actually started. So this was the interim of like Pyrex had just gone a bit quiet, and um, we we crossed paths by like email and Instagram actually, mm-hmm. and I was just like assisting him on like several projects, whether that be artwork for like Bin Trio, whether it be like show work for yay or whatever mm-hmm. i was working through him on a lot of projects like shane hood by air stuff yeah um and that eventually grew into a full-time role where i became his right hand and i was traveling like europe a lot of the time with him and whatnot um but at that same time i was still working in normal industry jobs like what like i was at like an ad agency in london uh-huh. called uh, story worldwide and they actually got absorbed by asop um and by the product design agency so i was still like doing normal nine to five stuff that was still very much not part of my life it was Uh something that i would send work into into the email and it would go out into the stratosphere and it would come back through in other people's runway shows or whatnot yeah but it didn't really become real until i i went to paris i just took my last couple hundred quid Mm -hmm. and then just went over and that's when it was like oh fuck this is real like now you're here yeah like walking four miles to like the Kanye APC show. Uh-huh. And I didn't know about Uber. As I said, I was from the end. <laughs> so when am I going to be using the Uber? Yeah. Like, I just didn't correlate. So I was walking everywhere the first time I ever went to Paris Fashion Week. E- everywhere. My feet were like bleeding and shit. <laughs> like, yeah, like, and I just walk everywhere in yeah. Paris and assist. And from there, I started to build more friendships with people within the industry. And that's when uh-huh. I'd say uh, it really, like my career in fashion began at like 21 i'd say 21 yeah. 22 is where it really began and was that sort of um your employment was through donda and it's it's tricky the way that they'd say it. i mean i had like uh ndas on contracts with both v and with donda uh-huh. and i mean of course virgil assisted who he assisted too yeah and um i would work on anything that came that he wanted me to work on. So, so that, was it like very nebulous? Like Yeah, it was everything. Yeah, so it yeah. was from like stage design for this rapper over here uh-huh. to this brilliant contemporary artist to like, you know, album artwork to collections for like any any designer who was within that, that team or the wider spectrum. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of like um, contributions and ghost work as well that I yeah, do, which yeah. I was completely fine with because mm-hmm. of course I come from the background of actual discipline. Yeah. So you were expected to work and not 
get mm-hmm. any credit. You just were happy to yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just wanted to work and learn. Right, right. And I knew that I was new to that field. Yeah. But of course, my background in product design helped. And just honestly, you know how this goes, knowing every single program in Adobe Suite, mm-hmm. knowing like Cinema 4D to yeah. Premiere Pro to After Effects. You really, could actually really execute well. every idea. Yeah. So yeah. I could do like the short abstract films and then score it with Logic Pro. Right. And then do like the the graphic lockup uh-huh. in the EPS file and send it off to Japan. That was fine. I yeah. could do the whole thing. Yeah. And that yeah. really played a massive role in being able to work across all these fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you were working remotely. Yeah, I was working remotely. <laughs> so I was doing this from like Northampton. So yeah. a lot of early graphics that I've seen throughout a lot of collections, I was like hand painting them in Northampton, a random part of England, uh-huh. which is pretty cool. Okay, so how does a kid from there even get his interview with Virgil? Ah, oh, man. How I did you like, even get I your was... foot in the door? So I had like four aliases. As I mentioned earlier, I had the streetwear mm-hmm. art- artist and I had the short film artist. I had my graphic design profile, which is still on Behance now, untouched. Uh-huh. <laughs> like this is the amazing thing is this is actually all still on the internet. It's, there's an actual track record uh-huh. of like uh, me getting to a certain point yeah, or yeah. whatnot. You're not like deleting these. No, no, no. It's, it's still there. There's a point on Behance where I just stopped posting because uh-huh. you can tell. Okay, he's probably like doing okay now yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. But um, I guess like just through sheer will, like reading Wikipedia pages of how other artists got there entry into the industry like uh-huh. working next to or trying to get in touch with the creative directors or mm-hmm. visionaries behind brilliant artists mm-hmm. across the board i was just researching and reading a lot yeah and i feel like i was just like delusional enough to think this could maybe 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 happen mm-hmm. so i just kept emailing 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 sending my cv through like the rsvp website no reply sending my cv to like uh all types of blogs that i knew uh-huh. great minds were involved in no reply and then I saw um, Virgil's Instagram and I was sitting in my chair in this product design company in Leicester. Uh-huh. And I thought, is there any point in me even pressing follow? What's the fucking point? Like, what's the point? Like, okay, of following Virgil's account. Yeah, because I okay. thought, because obviously I'm just some like some kid yeah. in middle England mm-hmm. who's from ENDS, who's got himself a grad job. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. But at the same time, I thought, why not just follow and see what happens? So uh-huh. I followed him and he followed me back. And then, like, uh, we got in an email dialogue. I quit my job, like, two days after. Uh-huh. And I just moved to my auntie's house back in London and just made it happen. Wow. <laughs> I know that's, like, a lot compressed Wait, you, into one sentence. when you follow him... Yeah. First of all, it's it's wild to me that you even had to think about following him. Yeah, because it's that's so... That's some new generation shit. Well, this was, like... This is, like... <laughs> What's the big deal about, four like, how years many ago. followers did he No, because it, it was... 50,000, yeah, it, it wasn't... It was less than 100, but it, it was more so... Like, the reality... I still had this, like, mindset of, like, okay, I'm in England and I'm far away from this world. Yeah. Because, to be honest, from my specific background, there aren't many people that have actually crossed over from, mm. like working class from nothing Mm -hmm. into like high fashion and pop culture who are black as well who aren't who aren't necessarily based in london at Mm -hmm. the time so if you look at all the other case studies they tend to all move into london and then they get their meteoric rise Mm -hmm. and i was outside of london at this point based outside so i had that counter against me as well Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day i just thought well i've got nothing to fucking lose like Mm -hmm. let me just like follow this guy and 
appreciate his artwork. Did you message him after you followed nah, him? Nah, he just started liking my photos and then... You follow him and then he just straight yeah, followed Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was like, he must have been on his phone at the same time. Which uh-huh. is like, the chances of that are ridiculous. Yeah. And um, he must have got some of my emails though, because then he, he, emailed, he emailed me. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I was like, yeah, this... It, obviously, it was a lot more formal. It was very proper. Yeah, yeah proper, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I started like, uh, assisting or whatnot. And off the back of that email, I quit my job in Leicester, got another job at the ad agency in London, and just stayed at my auntie's yard in uh, in Croydon. Uh, but so he offered you a paying job. No, I used that that uh, response from him <laughs> to get a seven thousand pay increase at an agency based in inner city London, and I used that to then move back into what? London. Yeah. What? It's based all... off that email. Yeah, yeah. You at you just. Got the confidence to then be like, I need a raise. Nah, so basically, <laughs> I was I was at one agency, right? Yeah. When my dialogue with Virgil started. Okay. When that dialogue started, I quit that agency mm-hmm. in Leicester and got a new job in London based off saying, hey, I've got this new dialogue with a brilliant art director, mm-hmm. yada, 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 yada. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I was scouted and got an increase at a new agency. Okay. And I used that cash flow to then move into Croydon uh-huh. on the edge of London right closer yeah, yeah. to the whole scene right. and culture and happenings uh, of both fashion and design and I just grafted wow. working like two jobs so I'd work like of course nine to five in this agency then I'd come straight back and work from like seven to two on anything like Donda related and mm-hmm. that was my life for like a year mm-hmm. before the agency was acquired by Aesop and then I went full time with V and Donda. What is Aesop? Aesop is the home, the um, the uh, toiletries. Brand. Oh, that brand. Oh, yeah, so that yeah, brand yeah. acquired that agency. Yeah, completely. yeah. Oh, okay. Because cool. that agency went under. Okay. So then they acquired them at a dirt okay. cheap price. So this is what all the kids listening want to know. After you started communicating with Virgil, how many emails did it take for him to finally offer you a job? Oh, this was over like half a year period. Okay. Like, that, okay, good. It wasn't. It wasn't quick. It wasn't like and one it, email. It was like it was constant. It was, it was a lot because I was like working throughout this whole whole process yeah. as well. Yeah, you had a full time um, job. And I think like that, having come from like a couple of agencies before, mm-hmm. had a huge impact to basically what I'm doing now. Yeah. Because there's credible places people can look to mm-hmm. to see that okay this person has actually worked yeah it's not just like in it for clout and for hype mm-hmm. it's like no like he's actually been in this industry for yeah. a little while now yeah he's somewhat reliable he's yeah crazy. exactly yeah, yeah. and he's actually about the work because my thing was always like the work first uh-huh. and then the fun stuff after mm-hmm. like and that's still why i don't really go to parties now because mm-hmm. it's always been about the work and the execution yeah. of the idea rather than just being part of the uh the com- like not the community the scene let's mm-hmm. say you know mm-hmm. and they both overlap but i just feel more comfortable actually executing the ideas you know yeah yeah wow okay that's amazing the whole story of how samuel connected with virgil abloh even with thousands of miles separating them is pretty much a textbook definition of work ethic and hustle it's hard today to not be enamored by the limelight it seems everyone on social media has some level of fame it's like when you go to a party There's the regular line, the guest list line, and then the people that just get escorted through both. Everywhere you look in life, it's the haves and the have-nots. But if you make your reputation about the work and only the work, you're gonna go places. 
Yeah, it might take longer, but it will have more substance and longevity. Kanye showed Jay-Z that he was all about the work. And then Virgil showed Kanye that he was all about the work. And Samuel displayed to Virgil that he was also all about the work. Here's the thing too, it's not hard to suss out a bullshitter. Anyone with some years under his belt and a few clicks on the internet will be able to tell if a kid is a con or the real deal. And you could see how the entire body of work these individuals created ain't some passing fad. They're making something that is going to be cemented in our culture forever. Um, you mentioned race just now a little bit. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're at an interesting moment in in people of color mm-hmm. where like coming off Obama as a president, um, even, you know, Meghan Markle and the yeah, wedding, yeah, yeah. right? And like, I don't know if you saw her pastor's speech. Yeah, I did. It, like, I did. Does, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a cliche term of a melting pot, but there's definitely mm-hmm. some mixing happening. And then like Virgil going to LV. Yeah. And even your meteoric rise, mm-hmm. where I would say, just even as a person of color, like mm-hmm. five, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have nah, been it possible. Nah, it wouldn't have at all. Yeah. Do you consider yourself British first or black first? I still like battle with this now i just recently did my ancestry dna to <laughs> okay. find out where i'm actually yeah. from and yeah. i'm from like benin where's that benin and Edo state in like west africa okay like of course post-slavery mm-hmm. so i still battle with the idea of what black means yeah um because there's no black land to go back to right as well which right. is like a huge thing mm-hmm. you know and of course uh i do feel british because i was born here yeah but at the same time, there's a, an entire scandal going on now in England called the Windrush scandal, which is talking about the uh, post-World War II uh, touting of Caribbean uh, immigrants to come over to England mm-hmm. and what they've been doing, that generation who are now like, you know, late, late 50s to early 70s they have wiped a lot of their initial papers to come into the country. Mm -hmm. And this has been a wider discussion with the Home Secretary to why this has been happening. And what this has resulted in is that generation, I think around 12% of that generation have actually been wrongfully deported back to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And this was not brought to House of Commons or to light until like a year and a half into the process. So that actually does make me question my identity more because that's my grandparents who were part of the Rimrush generation who yeah. are actually being deported now. Mm-hmm. So it puts you in this like weird uh, circumstance where I sound English. I grew up and studied in England. I was born in London. Yeah. My friends are English. But at the same time, the black British experience here, I know is different to the black American mm-hmm. experience. Um and it just puts you in a situation where I know I am British and I know I am black, but what that means on a wider scale uh, really hasn't settled yet, you know? Uh-huh. You're still figuring it out, what it means, you mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult because I know that I'm, I'm British and I know that I'm black and mm-hmm. I know that I'm also African. I know that I'm also Caribbean. Yeah. But to what extent do I have... Uh, a uh, a relationship with some of these places mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like i know like my 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 stepfather and my father actually moved back to barbados as well so mm-hmm. we have a, a really strong tie with the caribbean 
I used to go there a lot when I was when I was a child. My mum grew up there as well. But the reality is that we were we were like placed there. Yeah. You know, like Barbados was one of the first islands to ever be colonized. Mm-hmm. So I don't I only have like what eight generations in Barbados. Yeah. Then what? Right. Well, you see was, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I have like a I'm I'm I, I'm not just able to settle with. I'm black British and I'm from the Caribbean. That's not enough for me. No, I want to know like the layers. entire lineage yeah, and the legacy. The whole onion needs to be peeled. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And how about as it pertains to your professional career now? Like, I know when I sit at a meeting, like with a corporate 100 company, mm-hmm. I feel like there's different me's at that table, at that conference room table. And I, I feel like you've now been at a couple of these conference room yeah. tables. And it's like, there's me as the designer, which I know that I can stand on my own two feet and you can't fuck with what I've done. Uh-huh. But then there's me as an, an American. There's me as a New Yorker. There's me as an Asian American minority. Mm-hmm. And it starts to get like, I have to sort of read the room and see who oh, they sure. think they're talking to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You have to You project. feel that way. Yeah, of course. I have okay. to always project. Like, I mean, and sometimes it happens, like, as you know, like, uh, there's like a layer of consciousness to it, but then there's also, you know, how to be quite dynamic in different situations mm-hmm. as you've explained so you might see that the room is more of a like you know a, a working business conservative stance so immediately that hat just flicks on yeah and you know your your voice or your your like body language adjusts and adapts to it <laughs> yeah yeah and i yeah. think that's something if you're like a person of color you've got, you got to master you that know. shit you yeah you know how to work not work it but how to adapt totally how to mold because you've been doing it since you've walked into day dot, yeah you know? exactly <laughs> that's definitely something i'm like super super conscious of yeah you know? um let's talk about some of the some of those conference rooms you know? yeah so you you mentioned that you uh are doing something with Nike. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, going back to the day where you were selling fake Nikes yeah, on yeah. your lawn to then Nike calling you. I mean, like, mm-hmm. can you can you recount? Do you remember the day <laughs> when you got the email or phone call, like, from the Nike.com person? Yeah, I, I remember, like, I met um, a really pivotal figure in the Nike Energy team mm-hmm. globally, uh, called Sammy Janja mm-hmm. a few years ago and I actually met him through Zainab who handles a lot of distribution at Supreme mm-hmm. who I met through Benji B so these all came through like having worked for Benji B for a few years mm-hmm. I slowly built these relationships yeah. and Benji I, B is a legendary of course music, Benji yeah. B yeah, yeah like Deviation yes Radio 1 Benji B mm-hmm. and um, I feel like when that moment happened, like, you know, when I first had that conversation that they might want to work on something, it felt so surreal, <laughs> you know? Right. But, it, but it's like, weird. You're, are you serious right now? Yeah, like, it, it was crazy because it's like the flashback to you a decade ago, like, uh-huh. shot, in, shot in fake bits outside your yard. It was yeah. a completely different circumstance. Right. But I also felt like there was this, like, huge tornado of reality being altered when I was doing work for Donda and Virgil. Yeah. You had already gotten this a skewed reality from yeah, that moment. From that moment, yeah. which was at the age of like twenty two. Mm-hmm. So the shoe happened, the conversation happened when I at around twenty four. Okay. I started, I started talking to Nike and I yeah. was actually doing design work for them. Uh-huh. So I was doing like packaging for like Kim Jones, Nike mm-hmm. uh season one. 
and I was doing Stone Island work, mm-hmm. like packaging again mm-hmm. and execution for them at that point too. So there'd been this like slight rapport yeah. and it had grown quite right. quite naturally. Once again, it was about me showing I can actually do the work. Mm-hmm. And then after that, trust was built and then it grew into like a, a further project. Yeah. Yeah. So even just to like be able to have that Nike tick in the CAD file for uh-huh. me was like, this I, is the real deal. Yeah. I feel you that swoosh.eps file. Yeah, it's like, what the fuck? I will never delete that because it's just like amazing that they sent me that. It's like, like, I did, like, I remember. Because I I remember when I used to try to trace it. Yeah, 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 same. uh, same. It's like, yo, I actually have the real thing. The real thing, (laughs) you know? It's like the first time I got, like, the Stussy Funks. I did some work for them, Uh for, um, like, Benji B and a few other people as well. Um, Like, Theophilus London I was his creative director for a while too mm-hmm. around like the time of the Vibes album yeah and that was surreal having like the Stussy font yeah again it was that moment of like whoa once you someone kind of hands you that small element of control uh-huh. that's when it really sinks in right you yep. know yeah but yeah I, I the the, the solution illustrator file I have is like illustrator 5.0 it's like so <laughs> old but like yeah, I'll yeah. never delete that file um, and then talk about some of the uh, the work you're doing with Oakley. That's also like a shared, like we have, we do a lot of yeah. work with Oakley as well. So when I heard you're working with them, I thought it was dope. Yeah, like for me, like why I was really excited to work with Oakley is because their standpoint from a technical aspect mm-hmm. is brilliant. The technology and the resources they have and their understanding of fabrics. And for me, the outdoors, which is something I've had a slight interest in. I make jokes with my team, like the older I get, the more I get into like the outdoors. Yeah. And I had this... Uh, idea of being able to introduce a inner city protagonist into the outdoors and tell that in a very conceptual and artistic way mm-hmm. and i felt like oakley was the perfect place to tell that story mm-hmm. authentically so you sought oakley out or oakley sought you out oakley sought me out okay and then we we had this dialogue for like half a year uh-huh. um when i felt like i had something that i could actually bring to oakley that felt right mm-hmm. then the relationship uh came into fruition mm-hmm. and it's really been for me about making garments that embody the idea of survival like say if you were to get stranded in like up a mountain or in the wilderness yeah. for two to three days could you survive in the clothing mm-hmm. that i have produced for you right so there's very much a sense of like uh it's, it's the function before anything else yeah yeah it's the idea of being able to like uh you know take a coat like a long coat and pull it into two pieces then form like a blanket from it mm-hmm. like those type of ideas yeah. uh reflective materials are actually pretty decent at insulating insulation for heat mm-hmm. those are factors i'm looking at with the oakley collaboration there's a brilliant chance for me to just be focused on design that serves yeah rather than telling an artistic narrative mm-hmm there are elements of art that came that come through Oakley in the installations, like the latest installation I did in um in uh, Copenhagen, mm-hmm. where we had these huge uh, boulders that were painted bright red, and there were these industrial ropes that were suspended from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to recreate an abstraction of the mountain top, which could be passed through, mm-hmm. and the ropes and the boulders helped to create these confined spaces yeah. that also, when looked at from a slight angle appeared to make the same slants and angles you'd see from a mountaintop mm-hmm. so that's me being creative yeah, but it's yeah. still a lot more of like a geeky technical lens on yeah it, right, you know right. is there eyewear involved as well yeah there okay. was one piece in season one which goes into store in june july mm-hmm. 
this year and season two there are around two to three styles that we're working on mm-hmm. that's been a whole new frontier which has been really exciting yeah for me as well right it's dope to be able to make eyewear with like with oakley the, the gods of it yeah the, you the, know? instead of trying to do some yeah, Chinese yeah. glasses or something yeah like, you know? I, I held off i was like nah i'm gonna hold off until i can get <laughs> in that room i'm gonna hold off now. yeah yeah so it must be i mean you you mentioned about how surreal it is now to be working with these companies and yeah from back then when you first started a cold wall was it totally self-financed by you yeah there's no funding at all okay like zero and how did that go in the beginning were you profitable right from the get uh fortunately yeah but i started from like having free products and putting a made to order prompt Mm -hmm. in line with that and that enabled me to have like the smallest amount of cash to then flip the cash and put it into right categories and right products so you didn't pre-produce no. inventory no you designed three things and then got orders and then made those three things yeah and, and it was fucking stressful but that's what i did what did you deliver those things like on time and properly uh i tried to yeah I t- I, <laughs> that's like <laughs> you got me there like, well no that's usually no, that's, the truth. that's the usual that's the problem. truth yeah, like yeah that was i was operating out of like a random rented bedroom in like the middle of nowhere uh-huh. trying to like make it happen because i just left uh working for off-white mm-hmm. and donder at this point mm-hmm. and because i felt like i had a story that i could tell yeah and that was a cold wall so mm-hmm. i just pretty much put all my resource into it which at that time was like i think i started with like 200 pounds for a cold wall yeah 200 pounds yeah so that was which enough. by the way that's like 350 us dollars yeah so that was enough to buy me like a couple blanks that's like how much your sneakers for Nike are to cost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so you bought a couple blanks. Yeah, a couple blanks at first, which I didn't hide. They were printed on Champion. Uh-huh. And I felt like there was like a legacy in other brands that had come before and used Champion. Yeah. That's, so that's why I chose to use Champion to start with. And I was over-dying them myself in um, this rented apartment's like <laughs> kitchen, like just with like buckets and shit. Yeah. So it was like super, super like... <laughs> like really like hands on yeah it was definitely an art project it was not a business at this point i remember the first set of orders i printed out an a4 piece of paper on mm-hmm. inkjet and mm-hmm. like signed each one yeah so i'm sure some someone's kids, got it they still got it like yeah. the first ever, ever did you stuff. did you discuss with virgil that you were g- gonna do this thing and leave yeah yeah well i mean i discussed that i had this idea yeah like like i've got this like idea i want to tell because i believe that the first instance of HCW coming to light was actually a few months before I left. Because mm-hmm. I remember I did a panel with Virgil in Selfridges. This was like five years ago now. And we were speaking about ACW to like a group of people who, of course, attended the panel with Selfridges at like a round table. Mm-hmm. So the idea was there, but it was really just like a couple long sleeves. Yeah. And I was just explaining what it's going to be and what this kind of represents. But mm-hmm. it was insanely abstract because of course the product didn't match up to the intensity yeah. of what I was saying. Right. And then after that, I kind of thought, you know what? Let me uh, let me see what I can do with this uh-huh. and treat it solely as a art project. You know, I've yeah. like looked at other designers and icons i look up to and they always started their notion as a project mm-hmm. before a business yeah and that was really key to me mm-hmm. like and at this time i've just quit like i've just quit donda and working for v yeah so it's like this shit could go real bad yeah as well it could just be like the end and then i'm back to the ends and yeah. then nothing else yep like that could have been my exit from everything but i felt like 
it was just time yeah to tell like uh, a story that was quite close to me and that only i could tell but wasn't there a part of your brain that said let me i'm just gonna work for v and donda for the rest of my life and i'll be one of the luckiest motherfuckers on earth yeah but i feel like i don't know like you get so inspired by being around people who are great at what they do yeah that i mean the whole purpose is each one teach one Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so this is me doing my job by leaving and then like passing that baton onto someone else who Mm -hmm. can come in and learn and then go and do their thing or stay and be like the most great assistant ever yeah and help those artists exalt you know yeah but i felt like i'd i'd kind of done my bit Uh and it was probably time for someone else to come in and start learning and this really like syncopated at the same time that i was starting to form what i wanted to say with a cold war Mm -hmm. you know right yeah it's almost like with the amount of inspirational jet fuel you were getting soaked in you had to it was a confidence as well because you know when you see and when you're part of people who just live fearlessly through their ideas Mm -hmm. you just pick up yeah those if you don't pick it up you just die and get dropped off it's mm-hmm. one or the other yeah right you know you either like adapt mm-hmm. and you run with the pack or you don't yeah yeah and it's one it's one or the other right you know and i'll to be honest i know myself as well man i always want to be like able to say like this is something that i brought in uh-huh. and contributed wholeheartedly right right you know as well as support others i wanted to really not just want i just wanted to say more than hey i helped this person execute uh-huh. their vision yeah yeah you know i wanted yeah. to deliver a new story as well yeah you didn't want to be the ma- the best supporting actor you wanted yeah to be... that's not me man <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's not me this idea that samuel speaks about is pivotal to his career each one teach one he was surrounded by such iconic people it was either sink or swim and he swam but then he got to the point where he had the next big question keep being a supporting character in the system or venture out on his own The pros and cons are crystal clear, right? Stick around and, hey, you're in an incredible creative ecosystem that you can probably live well on for the rest of your life. Stable, paid, rewarding. Can't ask for much more than that in life. Leave and do your own thing? Complete creative freedom, sure, but also a very possible outcome of total failure that sends you all the way back to square one. Unstable, no clear idea of how much you'll make, and the possibility of crippling your reputation and confidence to each his own. Only you can answer this question for yourself. I mean, hey, Tinker Hatfield spent decades working for one employer. Could he have started his own shoe brand? Sure, where would it be today? That's a big question mark. So there's not necessarily a correct or incorrect answer here. It's more about doing what is right for your soul. Have you been to Selfridges recently? Yeah. Okay, so how know, crazy is it? It's mad. Because you just said, like, you did a talk at Selfridges and name-dropped a cold wall as, like, a conceptual concept. Yeah. Now, I mean, I was just in Selfridges this weekend, and you're on this, like, five-foot rotating <laughs> panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucking mad. Yeah, the sell-through <laughs> for this season has been absolutely mad there. We've been top seller for, like, 27 days in a row for men's contemporary. And I know this because I know kids who work on the shop floor, so uh-huh. I'm actually hearing what's actually going on. Yeah. Which is good, and it's just mad because, of course, the selfridges, man. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just like selfridges, right? Which is just really surreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the what feels good about everything that's come to pass is that my intent was not, I'm gonna make this brand, 
and make lots of money. It mm-hmm. was always like, no, I want to tell this story and I don't want to compromise. Yeah. And I still feel like I haven't had to compromise any of the ideas that mm-hmm. have been put forward for a Cold War. Yeah. It's still got the like hyper abstract videos mm-hmm. and like the really like uh, esoteric references. Yeah. You know, nothing's had to really been compromised. Of course, you learn how to expand a story into a brand, into a business, which of course generates capital mm-hmm. and we're doing like very well like i don't even mind talking figures like the last season we did like 3.5 million mm-hmm. for men's um and i hit my first million like last year mm-hmm. so there's definitely like an intent of being uh aware and in tune with a product that works for a consumer but that's grown organically yeah you know right. i would have been happy doing this if we were only doing like 100k a season mm-hmm. like i'd right. still be happy right you know but the growth has been phenomenal. Yeah, the growth's not bad still. Did you, um, at those early days, did you ever get yourself into debt? No, I didn't, you know. Not for a cold war, no. Wow. That's I've, I've been in, like, personal debt when I was a kid. Like, mm-hmm. just not knowing how to work with finances. Yeah. But not because uh, of cold war. No, never. That's never. amazing. By did the you time... ever have to use credit cards to, like... No, you know, we put... had, like, an overdraft that came in late, but we never actually used it. Nice. Because of course I like there was no reason for banks to lend me any money. Like, <laughs> yeah, why? I know. Like you trying was... to explain to a banker a cold wall is like actually, do you know what? <laughs> Look at my selective memory acting up now. Andrew and I had a t shirt brand when we were in university uh-huh. when we were nineteen years old and this is when the hundreds was in its peak. Okay. And we sold to two retailers and we got into like two K worth of debt. and i was like 19 years old a different name completely different brand what was the name of that brand it was like super abstract it's like 24 but it was spelled 2wnt4 okay so everyone was calling it twanta and i was like this ain't working you know (laughs) it was just too much it was just too much but then from that i was still studying Mm -hmm. so i kind of axed that brand yeah at that point at 19 and went back into studying and into industry Mm -hmm. rather than like try and take an idea that wasn't working. I yeah. wasn't ready. I right, was like, right. realized I wasn't ready. Let me go back and do my research and work, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. So by the time Cold War had come about, there were none of those mistakes at all. Right. We've never been in debt. Mm-hmm. You know? And you called Andrew back. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> like my boy. Like, you know, yeah. we've worked together for like a decade now. What was he doing when Cold War came back like or came you know he actually was working for virgil as well oh okay so the plot thickens <laughs> <laughs> so you poached from virgil too like yeah, well it's, it's interesting i was like i mean when i started working for v he needed an assistant to help him with more like the normal stuff on retail mm-hmm. so i was like hey there's a close friend i have who i trust i've worked with him previously he might be a good fit. Mm-hmm. So this was like six months into when I started working for V. Mm-hmm. So then Andrew came into the fold mm-hmm. as well. I didn't want to like, because obviously if you're from where we're from, it sounds really crazy to say it and so disconnected, but that is potentially like an opportunity that can change your whole life yeah. and pull you out of a whole class system or a sense of poverty. Yes. That's the reality. You're right. And people are not going to say this on the comments, mm-hmm. but there is a re- like a truth to there are individuals in this career path that we're in that can really help people yeah. and are helping people yeah you know and for me to have come from such like a, a disconnected and uh distant 
background mm-hmm. to not try to help one of my closest friends. Yeah. I would have been a snake in my eyes uh, because it's almost like I'm running off with an opportunity right. and not trying to bring people who have helped me mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. And now you fast forward like, you know, five, six, yeah, five years from then, Andrew and I head up a cold war and mm-hmm. I couldn't do it without him. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's very important that, you know, I guess your your intentions are in the right place. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't just be about, oh, I'm doing this because I want to be associated. Or What does that actually do for your quality of life? Right. Nothing. Right. You know, you know, so there's always been this wider picture of like, just wanting to be able to uh, give back opportunities mm-hmm. and support people who have supported you. Right. You know, it's like a, like a global mantra a lot of people live by. Yeah. You know? How do you and Andrew separate the roles and responsibilities? I think it it's fell quite naturally. So I work, of course, primarily pretty much independently on design. Mm-hmm. When it comes to retail, that's more Andrew's side. Mm-hmm. And we often group after he has like a, a, an idea and we'll refine if we need to on what retailers are right, what we need to do and what our strategy uh, is comprised of for a season. But Andrew is a figures guy. Mm-hmm. Andrew's very good with numbers. So that's his like that's his forte okay and he's he's just learned that on the way and got really really good at it mm-hmm. but when it comes to you know any type of decision making it will be myself andrew and our right hand Yi, mm-hmm. and the three of us pretty much are the nucleus yeah. of the cold war we've grown it up from the early days like it started off a cold war started off at least for the first i'd say about the first 10 11 months it was just me mm-hmm. independently and then once the e-commerce store started to turn a small profit yeah and i realized it might be viable for a business mm-hmm. then andrew got involved mm-hmm. uh, half a year on from then when we had one or two retailers then ye got involved mm-hmm. and now i believe we're going into uh, our aw delivery with around 107 retailers globally mm-hmm. so these two have been key to like the growth yeah. and the momentum but it's definitely like a family yeah as i said this is all we do how did you know after you got your e-com store open that you needed somebody like what told you that like i can no longer do this on my own i need to call andrew on the bat line <laughs> and help <laughs> what was the thing that like told you you needed help there um I, I think it was like i think there was two options there was the first option to sustain it as a small indie project and maybe like do like, you know, mm-hmm. 10 to 15 K a month or whatever, and just mm-hmm. maintain myself. And then there was the second option of seeing that. It, I don't know if it was necessary help that I, I, I was asking for, but it was the opportunity to grow it with someone. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of saw it as hang on a minute. I might have something here mm-hmm. and this is someone I know I can grow this project or potential business with. Mm-hmm. And from there, it, it just felt like a natural fit. Yeah. I'd handled money with Andrew for years. Okay. So I trusted him yeah. as well. But you as a creator of this brand mm-hmm. also must have recognized that, like, you know, I'm going to have to give up X, whatever it is. Maybe yeah. it's a percentage of shirts, percentage of the company. Like, the amount yeah. of money you make will now be split. Or, yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. But you felt like that was fully worth it at that time. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, we only really started to talk about splitting it and what that split would be 
once we'd hit over a certain point. Mm. But what we did make sure is that we were both paid like equally. Uh huh. For sure. Okay. Um, in terms of like salaries and stuff like that. Okay. Because we were both putting in our, our life's work That's into dope. it. So know? right from the get, you and Andrew were like equals in terms yeah. of like salary, which usually means equal in terms of like just stature in the company. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, of, two, of... Of two people. Two of yeah, two, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of both, there's always been like this real like straightforward balance. Like mm-hmm. that's like my brother. So yeah. when it came to like money and business, we always split it like down the middle. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of applied to a cold wall as well like Andrew has a a, a good stake of ownership mm-hmm. in, in the cold wall mm-hmm. and I own, own the majority but mm-hmm. he has like a good a good stake yeah. that we both sat down and we're like yeah this is right mm-hmm. you know and that I mean there's it's very important that you're just honest with one another yeah so that you can grow from friends into business partners because mm-hmm. there's sometimes we'd fucking hate each other yeah, but that's so important that we can be at that point, right? And know this is business and this is not our friendship. Because of course, like there's times I used to sleep on Andrew's like attic floor, uh-huh. like for a long time. <laughs> like, like there's real life shit. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Will always keep you humble that you just don't right. forget. Like I remember when I couldn't afford to to um, live in London uh-huh. because of course it's so expensive. So just to give you some background info. I I moved, I think within a four-year period, I moved 14 times across the country. In the last four years? I, I settled about a year and a half ago. So before that, you moved <laughs> before 14 that, times? Before a cold will stabilize, I moved 14 times in like three to four years. Uh-huh. So that was like in random towns, yeah. just, just so I could commute into the city, just to be in Ace Hotel every morning, just to have a chance encounter, or to be at the right party, to right, bump into right. the right person. Or whether it was moving to like an entire different city like Leeds yeah. and commuting down every single day wow. just to find a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. And these this is like the you know the uh beginnings of a cold war. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, you'll see like it's interesting because you live in you live in this space when you're trying to like make it or, or make things happen where you get an email about a late order. But then there's not an understanding that you're literally living in an act. Yeah. <laughs> right. Trying to make this idea happen. Yeah. You know, and that only really stabilized, I'd say, like two, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. But whilst going through that entire process, because I came from nothing, I felt like I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was fine. Right. Like I was never miserable. Mm-hmm. That was just like the life I, I'd, I'd live. Yeah, like, yeah. It would be an extreme of like, going over to Paris Fashion Week and working on, like, the Kanye APC show mm-hmm. and then going and working on, like, Hood by Air, uh, runway shoot for them in Rick Owens' apartment to coming back to, like, the middle of nowhere in England, uh-huh. like, renting or dying, like, dying uh, garments in, like, some random kitchen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which had nothing to do with anything related to fashion or design or affluence yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. And it, I lived, like, between that balance for years, uh-huh. you know? Wow. It, it's hard for creative sometimes to, like, take um, something that you birthed and then sort of quantify it into saying, like, all right, this is probably worth this much, and so you deserve that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, like, one of the hardest things to do, and I find it an accomplishment that you as a young creative were able to do that with Andrew mm-hmm. and you know, this was, I was going to segue into like the tomorrow deal. Yeah. Right. Which is like, you've now brought in another partner as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like 
for me, from my personal experience, like I didn't bring on any partnerships until 15 years into the business wow. because mm -hmm. of how I couldn't maybe, A, I was like a control freak, but B, like I couldn't put a number yeah. on the worth. And if you can't do that, then you can't decide how much to no, give sure. this person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you were able to just sort of coldly yeah. say like, this is worth this. Hey, you deserve this and you deserve that. Yeah, and I think that speaks to like, my personality is like really sporadic, mm. but also like incredibly uh, strategic. Mm -hmm. And I kind of make decisions with like a three to five year plan mm -hmm. in mind at every single point. And with uh, tomorrow, it was just a. It felt we worked with them just on distro distribution. Yeah, they were a sales showroom for you guys, right? Yeah, yeah. So we worked on distribution with them for around seven to eight months. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking to them about working on production. And that was a huge help in allowing a cold wall to pierce past um, almost what had become a stigma of like this streetwear brand trying to make clothes yeah. to actually have an access to luxury Italian mm -hmm. production. Mm -hmm. As an independent brand, I remember there was a moment it was Yi, myself and Andrew. We were actually standing right here. And I'd just done one of my mad ideas, which was like a super spontaneous pop-up, concept-led. So everything was free at this mm -hmm. pop-up. So we made no money from mm -hmm. the pop-up at all. No money. <laughs> I gave out everything for free. Okay. And it was like <laughs> book bags, caps, uh, printed school books. Uh -huh. And it was basically an art installation yeah. and a case study on the unwavered gap, or the wavering gap between leaving school and moving out into like the free world mm -hmm. and that that uh that that unease between that point so this was almost supposed to be like a subversive encouragement that you can do it or yeah. not um super abstract only i really got it which is fine i wrote a whole dissertation on it like one person has read it it's fine <laughs> right um and after we did this pop-up which was hugely successful uh -huh. they were like what the fuck are we doing? Like, do you want this to be an abstract art project or do you want this to be a high fashion brand? And we had this huge heated debate mm. and I was like, we can be both. There's we no can difference. Be both. Yeah. yeah. But then of course my team who are like the rational minds uh -huh. were like, you need to make a decision. Now with tomorrow, fast forward like four to five months from that point mm -hmm. where we felt like we, we'd reached a plateau in that we can't pierce through high fashion. Yeah. We ended this conversation with tomorrow and it was like a super 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 organic um relationship with my partners who are now Giancarlo and, and Stefano mm -hmm. from over there and mm -hmm. they understood what we wanted to do they'd worked with like Raf Simmons before me mm -hmm. they'd worked with Helmut Lang before me mm -hmm. of course Renzo Rosso is yeah. also involved in tomorrow so there was this like whole sphere of experience that we didn't have mm -hmm. and they were able to see what I was trying to execute and how they could help me restructure uh and, and refine the end product yeah and that comes from you know just general advice and hey you need to go and get things made here mm -hmm. to hey i think you should have a conversation with these people over here mm -hmm. to making sure the right people were seeing what i was trying to communicate yeah and at, at that point um it really felt like the team had been completed mm -hmm. you know we were missing that one component and we kind of had this lucid idea that maybe there's like like a gold pathway in fashion or some type of mecca but we don't know yeah we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing uh -huh. um 
and being like a British brand coming from where we had come from, no one had really passed over that point. Yeah. Not going through fashion school. Yeah, right. So, but we just kept doing it and it just aligned and we found the right partners to mm-hmm. do so. But another reason I was doing these erratic pop-ups is because I was actually basically doing litmus tests uh, geographically throughout the world yeah. to see what the pull of a cold wall was, mm-hmm. to see where we needed to improve and to see how we could improve our communication. Yeah. So, for example, the pop-up where we gave everything out for free, we pulled 700 people, maybe 600 people to that one location within 12 hours notice Mm -hmm. and this was me overthinking and being over strategic and it was a retaliation to actually not getting a feature on a specific fashion publication Mm -hmm. because they didn't feel we were big enough yeah so i was like okay well i'm gonna make a statement and i'm gonna pull 700 people to one place Mm -hmm. and shut down this entire area Mm -hmm. if you think i'm not big enough and i can't do it right and then from there, things started to change. Interesting. So I was very, I very much felt like the underdog, mm-hmm. not in like the widest spectrum of designers, but more so in London at this point. Yeah. Uh, I knew I was an outsider, but I also knew how to talk to normal people, mm-hmm. not just the fashion elites. Yeah, so yeah. I really used that to turn a current right. to continue to stir this cult. Yeah. So for example, that type of pop-up, I'd go and I'd just talk to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like sign CDs and stuff da, 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 right. and just be like about because yeah. these are normal people like me why not like right. I've always had this thing about like respecting anyone who's interested in the brand or what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. and I think that's really um, that respect rather than just trying to sell people shit that has really helped build the ACW cult yeah you know I think also what it did was those pop-ups showed whoever your potential partners were going to be how you fuck with this shit, like mm-hmm. how you just do it differently mm-hmm. so that when they become your partner, they're not surprised by some of the more esoteric, like out of the box things that you're doing. Like they already knew yeah. that he made a store and gave everything away for free. Yeah. We know what we're getting into bed with already. Yeah. You know? And it was funny because <laughs> at that point, like, of course we're completely independent. We've just done like, that was a week after our runway show. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't even really afford to be doing shit like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's funny because that led to a variation of the cap I gave up for free actually trended online. Mm-hmm. And the amount of so- like sales we got from that cap was ridiculous. That After month. giving them away, some for of free. them away for free. Yeah, right? it was ridiculous. Wow. And that sustained us yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. To, a, to a certain point, which we needed. I mean, really, it's, it's just been about like figuring out ways to talk mm-hmm. to communities that aren't usually spoken to yeah a lot of the time through these these pop-ups as well you know yeah i feel like there's like a humanitarian tinge in a cold war Mm. or what i try to to do with it Mm -hmm. prior to you deciding that you're doing this you're going to spring on tomorrow as a partner yeah there must have been some level of trepidation or right i would assume that there had to be like a real reckoning with yourself that like am i really going to do this or was it not was it just like yes they're the partners let's sign this you know what? There was an element of that, but I thought, I, do you know what I did? I actually detached myself from it a little bit and thought this project and this brand and this story and narrative has not existed before from mm-hmm. someone who's been in the sandbox and it needs to exist. It's actually bigger than me. 
Gotcha. Now, the deal was brilliant. It's fair. They mm-hmm. own like uh, a good stake, mm-hmm. but it's not 50%. And it's, it's not a majority stake mm-hmm. either, but it's fair. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just working for them for the duration of just under a year, we gelled quite yeah. well. Right. You know? Yeah. You were like um, dating before you got married. For a time, yeah. for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, on, on several fields. And it just was a really good uh, pairing, mm-hmm. you know, for what they want to achieve and what I want to achieve. And I think that was the biggest distinction between, you know, other brands that don't partner or feel like the partnership isn't right. Mm-hmm. I knew and myself and my team knew we wanted to enter luxury fashion yeah that became the new uh you know uh mission mm-hmm. in a sense once we realized we've made this like esoteric lucid art project yeah we then decided wait a minute this story this narrative and these ideas are good enough to exist in this context mm-hmm. and as it hasn't existed before there's actually a reason and a space for it to exist Therefore, there's a purpose for it. Yeah. Therefore, we should actually pursue this. Right. right. It wasn't like a, a carbon copy. It's like, no, there's actually an intent yeah. here that needs to be told. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is where the idea of scalability came into play. Before we signed off, I wanted to ask Samuel a topic in fashion that is rarely spoken about. Is there a wall built around the fashion world, particularly luxury fashion, that maybe holds certain people back? It's always been an unsaid, dirty secret, but who better to ask than a kid from the hood who came all the way to the highest levels of luxury fashion? Is there in your experience now that you've played from sort of like DIY fashion to street to luxury now, is there a, there's a perception of this, I'm wondering from your point of view, is there a guarded walled like castle that is protected from the outside and you, someone like yourself which comes from no connected family Mm -hmm. or like you know your mom wasn't the editor of so-and-so magazine like for for people like you is there a wall yeah there's multiple walls multiple walls it's classist as well over here so class race money connection yeah and so without you know those things the likelihood of you scaling all of those barriers is like really nearly impossible. Yeah, to like it's not it's not based on skill set, is it? It's based. It's. It, you know what's what's difficult though, if I didn't study, and get like a first class degree in design, there's no way this would have happened. Mm-hmm. So you needed that first seed. Yeah, of I, educa- need, I, need, like you I needed, needed education. education. I needed education. Right. To even be moderately exposed to like a door slightly opening yeah but i I believe that was your way i think there's other ways not everyone um, who made it in got it through graphic design right no but they got it through parsons or they got it through architecture school yeah a lot of the time too yeah so there's often like this like common thread of usually not always but usually those who manage to break past the barrier of simply being in a good place in design or employed in design tend to have studied. Yeah. So if you look back, Mm -hmm. it's like Heron went to Parsons, Mm -hmm. for example, V studied Mm -hmm. and got his master's too. Like there tends to be like this, uh, this thread, which is still quite important. And I think what happens is the idea still needs to align with the rules of that discipline. Mm. And usually 
it's when it doesn't even have to be degree level it's just courses or anything once those disciplines that golden ratio for example Mm -hmm. i actually implemented um it's more like a different respect for a field of design or creativity rather than just like an artist Mm -hmm. which is completely different you can obviously people train to be honest my father like got first class painting at st martin's Mm -hmm. so that's a different story but uh (laughs) but no there's definitely this thread of like like Yoon, for example, studying as well. Yeah. There's a respect for design mm-hmm. that is passed through education. And I think that is a connecting dot, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah. And without that, I might have just been like a really creative kid, uh-huh. but it wouldn't have translated into like a mature, concise uh, execution of ideas necessarily. Right, you know? right. So I guess your advice to a kid is stay in school. Yeah, I always say <laughs> study, man. Because for me, studying got me out the ends. Mm-hmm. So that was me getting away from home. Right. And uh, not necessarily away from home. I wouldn't say, because I'll come from a good home, but I'd say away from like the hood. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to put it. Like before <laughs> I went in to uni, I had like a court case for a GBH and a fray. What is that? It's just basically fighting, fighting, okay. fighting, fighting or whatever. And I got guilty on it as well. Uh-huh. So when I went to go to uni, they flagged me when I went in and I had to have a security interview. Mm-hmm. I'm not like a bad kid at all. I haven't done like complete madness or anything like that. I don't, like I'm not from like the roughest side ever, but just being in that environment, that was like a normal thing. Yeah. But of course, going into like a higher education environment, which is much more middle class. You could be a problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like, so really leaving home to go to uni, for me, I would say is where my life completely changed mm-hmm. its trajectory. Like, mm-hmm totally i remember going to uni and thinking why the fuck are these people so happy like people were just happy if, whether it be like a house party and people were like smiling i'm used to people just stand up on the wall being pissed off like <laughs> right. do you know what i mean like, like it was a whole spying people yeah scene, like yeah. it was a whole different world that i was exposed to yeah you know and now like um it almost feels like i live like a second life yeah you know are you seeing that wall Oh, that world again like where now that you're entering into the second evolution of a cold wall are you entering environments in the high fashion world where you're like this ain't where i came from like yes yeah, it's, it's, it's it strange must, it, it must be right yeah it's, it's like it's not really things you could have ever like depicted or drawn or scribed you know yeah. it's it's so it's so surreal but uh-huh. i still feel like i have like that blurred lens from when i from when i first like worked with donda yeah that from there it was all skewed <laughs> like it's just right. all skewed you're living in dreamland yeah because i used to watch like youtube videos of all these guys and viva and follow the blogs and uh-huh. i was literally watching on the internet like yeah i was so i wanted to be in and contribute to like that design zeitgeist moment so badly i was like one of the kids on Hypebeast. Mm-hmm. I wasn't commenting, but I was one of the kids on Hypebeast, yeah. checking it every day, being like, oh, I wish I could work for like Shane or da 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 uh-huh. And I ended up working for these people uh-huh. or contributing. So I was literally on the other side of the screen. You jumped through the screen. Yeah, the fourth wall was gone, yeah. you yeah. know? And for me, that is still like the biggest like mindfuck uh-huh. that if you just persevere, you can actually do it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really weird right, right. to even even think about, but that's still uh, beyond like all of the new environments I go into, which are phenomenal. That moment was really like the red pill, blue pill moment for me. Uh huh. Right. 
All right, I think that's dope. Yeah, wrapped up. Yeah, that was a great way to wrap it up. For sure. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of The Business of Hype with Samuel Ross of A Cold Wall. You can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. And subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I personally use Overcast. And also, I love hearing your thoughts on Twitter. So definitely reach out to me. I'm at Jeff Staple. You could also check us out on the web at businessofhype.com. And you could email any questions to questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is directed by Daniel Nevetta. It's been edited and produced by Bright Young Things. You can check them out at byt.nyc. Engineering is by Alexander Christensen, and our intern is Carolyn Cow. Our producers at Hypebeast Radio are Ben Rosen and Jay Chung. You should check out our other shows on Hypebeast Radio, The HBR Show, hosted by Ben Rosen, and Soundcheck, our new music show, hosted by Manny Maduculum. This was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location in London, England. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio.